You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Richard Brennan and I, Nils Kastor-Larsen, where each week we take the polls of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Rich, it is so great to have you back this week. How are you doing down under? What's going on? Very good, Nils. It's it's quite cold down here, but um, I'm getting ready after this podcast to head off down to the farm um, to do some controlled burning because in winter down here, this is the opportunity to do some controlled burning to stop those big fires coming in the, the summer season. So um, I'm going to be Smoky Joe for the next week. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds interesting. You know, it's funny. I uh, Obviously, we have uh, we had the U.S. Um, unemployment numbers yesterday, and we, we hear a lot about the, uh, the U.S. economy in general. But I don't have a much of a feel for, for the Australian economy. I mean, how, how are things down? How does it feel from where you are? We, we tend to be a, a mini US, you know, a mini me, a mini US. But, uh, you know, w- what's happened over here, it's quite interesting. Um, our property markets are booming and um, uh, we've got a rental crisis over here where rents are, are skyrocketing on our property prices. The Reserve Bank uh, yesterday decided to um, just put um, interest rates on hold for a moment. Uh, they believe that they've uh, they've had a, a sequence of very small sort of uplifts over the course of time and quite a large number of them. And obviously people people in Australia can't remember back to the 1980s where we had, you know, 18% um, interest rates and things. So, you know, they, they start squealing when um, interest rates get up to about 4 or 5%. But anyway, what's happened is the Central Bank, uh, uh, Reserve Bank of Australia, has had a number of lifts in a very sort of um, incremental way, small way, not in a big heavy way, but they put it on pause for the moment, just waiting to see what happens. But it's a it's a funny state of affairs over here. We know, uh, we feel in our bones that a recession is coming, but uh, uh, we're not actually seeing it yet. So um, who knows what, what, what happens, Niels? Exactly. I think actually recession has, not just in Australia, but, but certainly in the US and Europe, has been so anticipated, and and I think a lot of people scratching their heads as to when when will it arrive? Um, because, <laughs> because because if we wait long enough, it will arrive. It's just a, a question of when. Now, normally before we dive into the topics, uh, Rich, I also ask what's on your radar. Now, I kind of jumped in and asked you a little bit about the Australian economy. That may may not be on your radar. What's uh, what are you what are you paying attention to in in the world of finance at the moment? Well, with with um, with my trend following models, um, I, I, the last two months I've had um, small losses over the last couple of months, and that's basically because there's been a shift in my portfolio going on where um, some of the uh, some of the big outliers that I had, such in such as London Sugar and uh, Sugar and Orange Juice, etc., um, they've they've gone through um, you know significant retracements now. Um, so I've been, they've been significantly de-risked. They've hit those trailing stops, and uh, but fortunately, the yen. It's all about the Japanese yen at the moment, and uh, the Nikkei, the yen, uh, the yen pairs. Um, they tend to be um, giving a lot of support to the portfolio, um, providing a bit of um, 
opportunity to pay for some of those um, give backs of my um, my sugar trades and orange juice. So it's it's interesting that there are certainly trends about, but um, you know I've yet to see it significantly evolve into the performance of my portfolio because there seems to be some offsets going on between you know um, the give backs of sugar and orange juice and the the, um, the the growth of the yen. So, but fortunately now, um, all of the uh, you know I've closed my positions down in in London sugar and in sugar and orange juice. I think is all over the last. No, it might not be all over when I last look. I think I still think it's going, but um, the yen pairs might take over. But it's de-risked out of the sugar trades, and it's now well positioned if those yen pairs continue trending going forward. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. Do you uh, are you involved in any of the grains? I did notice as part of my sort of little trend following update that there's been some massive swings in in corn and stuff in the last few weeks. And yes, uh, I, 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 I trade quite a few of the softs, but um, there, there's no real sort of significant impact this month on the the grains in my portfolio. I trade oats, trade soybean, soy meal, soy, soy oil, uh, wheat. Um, etc. Uh, cocoa, cocoa's actually uh, doing a bit of assistance at the moment for my portfolio, which is very unusual because cocoa traditionally for me has been an awful <laughs> market. But uh, not you know, not I'm just for you, I think. Benefit. I think most trend followers will be nodding right now, saying that's <laughs> yeah. one horrible market to be a trend well, following. I know. Might might make me sort of go and get a nice warm cup of cocoa after this sure. podcast, Niels. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, and no, I think, I mean, I was just from a kind of transitioning into our little trend following update before we dive into the topics. I mean, it, it was a certainly from the numbers that I track, it was a pretty quiet start to the third quarter, really. Obviously, Q uh, first half, uh, now that we are sort of week into and we start seeing the first numbers. You know, very respectable. I think after a strong 2022, a lot of people think, oh, you're going to give back all of it uh, in the coming, uh, in the next six months. But actually, uh, yeah, there was a little bit of a gap back in March, but most people are back and have recovered all of the March uh, pain, which is uh, which is great to see. But as, as I was alluding to, uh, not, I mean, yes, commodities, there were a few things going on this week, but the big battle this week really was, as far as I can tell, in the traditional financial markets, not so much currencies, uh, frankly, although a bit of a retracement in uh, you know, yen and in, in terms of strength in the yens all of a sudden, but really fixed income and stocks. And what's interesting to me is that, uh, first of all, we've kind of gotten down now to the same level of interest rates, I should say, up to the same level of interest rates as we have prior to the SVB uh, crisis. So we're hitting those lows in price now, and some market seems to be breaking through those lows, making new, quote-unquote, all-time lows, which when I mean all-time, I mean in this interest rate cycle that started a couple of years ago, which is quite interesting. But then at the same time, I mean, a lot of equities only a, a few percent away from an all-time high. Uh, so I think a lot of people who are not price followers will be left in, in with somewhat of a conundrum in terms of what is going on with these markets. Um, so, of course, it speaks to our own uh, our own beliefs that uh, following price is, is a pretty... Um, Pretty common sense way of approaching these markets. Makes it easy, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> Sometimes at least, Rich. <laughs> Anyways, my own trend barometer, yeah, 48, finished it uh, last night. I will say that it's... Um, uh, it's moving in the, it's you know moving towards the higher end of neutral, um, but it would be nice if we could make a breakout and uh, and actually 
uh, give some some real solid uh, indication that performance was coming from the trend follow side. Uh, but anyways, Beta 50 index up 70 basis points in July, up half a percent for the year. SockGen CTA index up 60 basis points for the month of July and for the year. Trend index up a quarter percent, up about 40 bips for the year. And now uh, SockGen short-term traders index is the only one that's down. That's down a quarter, down 3.6% so far this year. MSCI World down 1.4 for the month of July. The bonds, world government bonds, down 1.1. And the S&P are down about 1.2% so far in July. But of course, the equities are still up strong for the year. All right, Rich, I have alluded to the fact that we have, uh, as usual, some great topics, topics that, um, you know, you brought along, uh, where we're going to sort of, um, again, try and peel back the curtain uh, a little bit in terms of how we see um, trend following and trend following models and, and, and some of the key things that people should think about, let's put it that way, when they want to try and understand some of the things we do, some of the choices we make when designing trend-following models. So as usual, I'm going to have a sip of coffee while uh, I, I pass the mic on to you, and uh, I'll, do, I'll do my best to keep up. All right, Niels, that's great. <laughs> so look, this, this first topic, um, what I wanted to talk about is this, um, you and I often talk about this ourselves in, in this preference we have for trading medium to long-term models and why we keep away from the shorter-term models. And um, a lot of tra traders and investors, you know, they, they believe that um, opportunities exist in all time frames. They're, they're sort of viewing the market as um, a big open system with an infinite upper bound and an infinite lower bound. And they believe that, um, you know, trends are just as valid in the micro scale as they are in the macro scale. But I'd like to suggest that perhaps there's a different way of viewing that perspective um, to suggest that there actually is a fundamental reason why um, our, our backtest processes and all of the research that we've undertaken seems to fall on the medium to long term as, as a preferable stance for our uh, hunting these outliers than um, at, at the, the, the small scale. It's not to say that outliers don't exist at those small time frames. They do, but noise is far more prevalent um, in those lower time frames or those small time frames. And as you you uh, you stretch out to the medium to the long term, the prevalence of noise decreases. And I just want to explain how uh, a complex adaptive system works um, and in particular applying this to the financial markets. Um, so th the core principle of our approach, Niels, is, as we've discussed before, is that we believe that trader impact is the dominant reason why prices move. Now, of course, there are a lot of different investors and traders who apply derivative reasons that are uh, uh, you know things like fundamental factors. Um, um, you know what what's inflation doing at the moment? What are interest rates doing at the the moment? What are the global macro factors? But they're more derivative reasons for what moves price. Um, we sort of um, because we're price followers, we all of our information is being derived from price itself, and our, our philosophy lies in the fact that it is actually. The, the trader impact of the buy and the sell decision and the quantity that's being um, bought and sold at that particular instance that is responsible for moving price. So we, we see that as trader impact. 
And uh, the way we explain that trader impact is we say that everybody trades using their own models. And those particular models and the rules um, that are contained in those models uh, determine the level of impact that um, a particular trade outcome has. Now, um, it, it's to be viewed like a, a big auction place where the brokers match the buyers and the sellers. So they're looking at matching quantities of of the buy and the quantities of the sell to match them, and then that determines the the price that is struck for that particular transaction. So it's the trader behaviour and their models, which are basically implementing an applied force to the markets. Um, so, uh, you know, if we get a dominance of one particular behaviour associated with a dominance of a, a participant that, or, or a group of participants that are applying a particular model um, that all gives a buy decision at the same time, they get matched to sellers, but the, the, the bias of that uh, impetus of that behaviour starts exerting these pressures, uh, which creates a bias in the price series. So understanding that context, we can now come down to what is a financial market. Now, we view a financial market as what we call an open asymmetrical system. In other words, it has a lower bound. And we view the lower bound as being the fundamental unit of trade activity, which is the tick. So if we, if we look at uh, market activity comprising all of these participants in a market who are all uh, interacting in that market through their buy and sell decisions, the most discrete level we can get to is the tick. That basically is the starting point for the financial market. And as we accumulate more and more ticks of more and more trader impact, we start um, that that starts consolidating into a price series over the course of time. So uh, in the, the very short-term space, there is this lower bound. So it's a, an asymmetric, uh, open-ended system because there's no upper bound, but there is this lower bound. So what that means, and we, we also have other complex adaptive systems that exhibit that asymmetrical property, our universe being one. It's an, a, an open asymmetrical system, um, which has a lower bound, but um, an undefined upper bound. In other words, the universe is still in the, cr the process of creating. We've got um, you know, the, the stretching of space-time, we've got the creation of, um, of, of uh, new things. Uh, it's it's open-ended, but it, it has this asymmetrical lower bound. You know, when we come back to the point of the Big Bang where it all started, we see this asymmetry in place. The same way as financial markets exhibit this asymmetry. So at this micro scale, when we start getting a few participants, all with a fairly common behaviour, so in the very shortest timeframes, the most participants that interact at those very short-term timescales are things like the high-frequency traders. They, they occupy that short-term space. Um, the people that are trading actively um, with, with sort of... Um, you know, precision with their, their models. They're, a lot of convergent models are, are operating in that space. There's a lot of ups and down pressures going on, but there's no defined bias at this point of time. It's a very noisy environment, competing pressures going on all the time. But as we slowly in this, this asymmetric open system start increasing the space of possible states, in other words, the number of participants increases in, in their um, behavioural activity and the way they impact with the market, 
as as we start going out to longer and longer time frames, because we're getting more and more participant interactions and behaviour, we notice this in, in, in sound acoustics. This is where we find that in our sound acoustic studio, we'll find that there is a lot of noise in our particular acoustics. And the way to remove that noise is to start overlaying random series of sound onto that, that noisy environment. Now, we understand randomness as being um, indeterminate. In other words, when we're not saying that this is randomness in the true sense of the physics word, but we're saying that it's a noisy environment. There is no clear bias in the series. There's a lot of linear up moves, linear down moves, etc. So when you overlay another random series onto that, you get um, destructive interference working where the noise gets cancelled out as we get more and more participants starting to interact in that behavioural mix. And so the process of more and more participants and their different um, models being applied in that environment, we start to see the noise get dampened and we start seeing the bias uh, in that frenetic activity, the bias start exerting itself and amplifying because we're getting a reduction in the noise and we're getting an amplification of the signal. And that's why when we look at monthly trends versus minute trends, uh, if we're looking at the, the minute timescale where we see this massive of different behavioural activity, a lot of noise in there, there is no, um, no order emerging from that noise. It's chaos down in that region. But as we start going out to the daily timeframe, the weekly timeframe, the monthly timeframe, we start seeing these biases start amplifying the noise reduces. And so at the monthly time frame, when we observe a particular market, we can say clearly, ah, there have been fundamental factors that have been driving price from the low in 1980s up to the high in the 2020s. We can start assigning key sort of fundamental reasons for that, that overall movement in price. But the, the minute of that price movement has had a hell of a lot of noise in it over that, that interval. But what has led to that, that monthly time series is the bias in the series that has progressively amplified and it's distilled the signal from that noise. And so when it comes to trends and these outliers that we rise, when, when we look at a monthly time frame uh, and we see the big moves, say, from 1980 up to 2020, it hasn't been through the, the change events associated with the, the noise, the up and down frenetic activity that has caused that, that directional change over the last 40 years. What it has actually been has been the major price moves, the major anomalies, the major directional shifts in the market, the major transitions in the market that has created um, that overall bias in the series. It's not the minute that's contributing to that. It's the emergent effects of all of this behaviour and the bias that has been amplified from that behaviour that has therefore arisen, arisen in that sort of longer-term time frame. So if we view it this way, we can understand, ah, then there is a preferential reason why we choose to adopt medium to long-term lookbacks because 
in a, in a in a physics um, context, um, as far as a physical system, we can see that there is certain destructive interference and amplification effects, which is actually creating these beneficial opportunities as we step out with more participation out to the medium to the longer term. So I, I just want to sort of suggest that that is a way to view it, which therefore gives a definitive reason why we don't want to be trading in the short-term time frame because the impact of, of that, the short-term price movement is inconsequential to the overall price movement that you'll get of a series from this phenomenon of bias and from this phenomenon of amplification and positive feedback and all of these things we've talked about before in our series. So I just thought that that was uh, an interesting way to, to start looking at, at that sort of question. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think for me, at least, I think this is also why when 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 we talk about short term, and of course, there is an index that we uh, quote every week, the Sokjin Short Term Traders Index. Um, but from my point of view, I, I actually don't think that that's short term trend following. I think some people might get confused with short term means short term trend following. For me, it just means short term. Because as you say, there is too much noise in the in these data series uh, for a trend following system using the golden rules, which is always important to uh, essentially make money from that. At least that's not my experience, and I I have not really come across anyone who could demonstrate that they were doing trend following, but on shorter term timeframes. I mean, of course, there's exceptions. I'm I'm sure of that, but but generally speaking, I think quote-unquote, those of us who call ourselves trend followers, we will gravitate based on the evidence towards medium to long-term timeframes because of exactly what you say. That's kind of how we uh, can find the true signal, uh, so to speak, in the data series. Yeah. Just just on that thing as well, Neil says, there's a, a term that's often used in complex adaptive systems called emergent artifacts, um, things that are created by the system itself. And I think when we're looking at these these massive outliers that, that uh, we all like to sort of um, get involved with, they are actually emergent features arising from this complex adaptive system. They're an emergent structural feature, not from an individual participant's activities, but from the collective actions of all of these participants that create these emergent structures. Uh, we see these emergent structures, uh, you know, in, in the physics lab, uh, when we start trying to understand how we get a universe arising from quantum fluctuations, you know, so if we go back to the the Big Bang, where they they start um, basically concentrating the universe back to a primeval point, and they say what created the large scale structure of our universe, and back at that uh, that resolution, at that very fine scale or resolution. It's these minor perturbations, these minor variations between what's random and what's non-random, these minor variations that create this necessary bias uh, that ultimately, uh, as the universe unfolds, gets um, amplified into these emergent structures like the galaxies, like uh, the, the, the large-scale structure of the universe, in exactly the way that in the, the financial markets, we get large-scale structures unfolding. Uh, these emergent structures uh, from uh, these biases that arrive at, at the very small scale. Because when, you, when you're in the world of nonlinearity, you might have heard of that term, the butterfly effect, 
where a very small flap of the wings of a butterfly over in Brazil causes a hurricane over here in Australia, or a cyclone, that's the term we use over here for hurricanes. But uh, it's this amplification property, uh, it's this small bias, and it's this nested architecture of these complex adaptive systems that serves to amplify that effect, uh, that actually small variations can create massive structural differences um, as, an, as an outcome um, in a nonlinear um, universe. So uh, that's the way I think it's, it's useful to think in terms of these, these trends that we like to hunt. We know that they're outliers. We know they're anomalies. They're massive in extent. They're these emergent structures. And it's a bit like, uh, you know, uh, when you examine any complex adaptive system at the, the, with a microscope at the fine scale, it looks like chaos. It's a bit like looking at the, the computer screen or the TV from a very close perspective. You see all of these pixels and they have no uh, form. Or, or uh, But as you step back, medium to long term, you go back and back and back, you start seeing these emergent structures from all of these pixels consolidating into a picture. That's an emergent structure arising from the interaction of these pixels. And it's the same way in the financial markets, from the interaction of all of these, these ticks, the behaviours of the participants in the market, how they're interacting, that as you scale back out, you start seeing these emergent structures unfold, such as these massive trends that ultimately get manifested at the monthly timescale. Yes, no, absolutely. Just just to sidetrack completely here, uh, Rich, but since you mentioned this thing about the butterfly, I don't know if you come across this in the last month or so. There was this, uh, I guess he was a contractor on the South Pole, a US contractor on the South Pole, that came out and said, well, he was very surprised to learn when he was there that actually there is some kind of nuclear reactor on the South Pole, similar to what they have at the CERN here in Switzerland, where you can make these uh, incredible whatever uh, fusions uh, happening. And so what he said was, and this is the scary part, and talk about a butterfly here, he said twice when they started it up, there was an earthquake in Christchurch, <laughs> right? So, I mean... Uh, I know we smile. <laughs> well, exactly. So uh, we have to be, we have to be aware of these butterflies. Anyways, yes. now another thing we have to be wary about is the next topic. So let me frame that a little bit, because we are going to talk about correlations, and there are of course some trend followers out there that believe that correlations are only important up to a certain point, and there are others who believe that they're actually important maybe beyond that certain point. But that's not what we're going to hear talk about today. We're going to talk about how, for example, when you know you have markets that, for the most, for the you know, for most times, are highly correlated, how you might actually get a little bit of diversification into those by trading them slightly differently, so to speak. Is that fair? That's that's fair, Niels. That's fair. So to start off on this, uh, with. In trading these outliers, we, we have a conundrum because diversification brings us two benefits. Uh, one is the benefits of correlation. Uh, in other words, the benefits that are brought to a portfolio by trading uh, an uncorrelated mix of return streams. That is one benefit that's brought by diversification. But there's another benefit in our hunt for outliers uh, in diversification, increasing our ability to target more outliers or have more representation of outliers in our trade outcomes. This balance operating. So 
most um, traders and investors recognise that uh, as you, uh, if you have genuinely uncorrelated uh, markets, uh, there comes a point in time where uh, the marginal benefits of diversification start getting less and less and less when you get up to a certain level. And that you, you might get up to 30 or 40 markets, and you start seeing a significant reduction in the benefits delivered in terms of uh, uncorrelated, adding more uncorrelated markets into the mix, whether that assists the overall portfolio. So there is this limit reached or this marginal threshold that gets less and less. But what, what a, a, an outlier hunter will maintain is they say, yes, we recognise that and we accept that principle. However, uh, recognise also that with the vast majority of markets that we trade um, in our universe or the available markets, there is a degree of correlation almost in every single one of the markets we're trading. And so whilst theoretically it might come to a level of 30 uncorrelated markets, you could probably get away of trading 60, 80 um, different markets that have, um, you know, are less uncorrelated than the optimal 30 to 40, and we'll start getting this marginal benefit decrease at, say, 60 or 70 markets. But then beyond that, why go further beyond that? Now, the outlier hunter is saying, well, the reason we go beyond that is because diversification offers these additional um, benefits in increasing the, the, the frequency of representation of outliers in our distribution of returns at the portfolio level. So we'll say we want to go further than, than the 60 or 80 where the marginal benefit decreases. But there is a little trick we can apply by using system ensembles so we uh, talked, Niels, before about how I, I like to use what I call ensembles of trend-following systems with my, my program. So in other words, if I'm trading a single market, I might use, you know, uh, say up to 10 different trend-following systems to trade that single market. But each of those systems in the, the, that have been developed using a trend-following philosophy, they've got a different entry they've got a different initial stop, they've got a different trailing stop and a different exit mechanism. So they're all individually unique. And what the reason why we make them unique is that when we bring them together as an ensemble, the system design itself serves to break the level of correlation that exists in the trade outcomes of trading that ensemble as opposed to trading a single system on a single market. So let's say then that uh, we had two very correlated markets like, um, let's say we had sugar and London sugar, two very closely, highly correlated markets. Or let's say we're trading Brent oil and we're trading crude oil. Historically, they've had very close correlations. Uh, you know, uh, they might have a 0.7 degree correlation, highly positively correlated markets. Now, when I apply this ensemble approach with these trend-following systems, what I find is that, A, I get a much greater trade frequency per uh, market that I trade because I'm using multiple systems as opposed to one system. And what I'm finding is that the ensemble effect, because it's using principles of what I call co-integration and correlation. Co-integration is a long-term relationship basically through structural design that enables you to ensure that one system operates independently from another. So when we have different entries, 
different initial stops, different trailing stops. It's forcing an outcome where they're not uh, going to be trading in exactly the same context as the other system. It's breaking the relationship um, of correlation that exists because you're trading these uniquely configured structural systems. And this is bringing this feature called co-integration into your portfolio, which is therefore allowing you to trade fairly highly correlated markets with an ensemble of systems, and you get totally different results when you're applying those ensembles on those two markets, even though those two markets are highly correlated. So an example is when I'm applying an ensemble of systems to say Brent and crude, if I visually look at the price series, say for 30, 40 years, they are incredibly highly correlated. But remember before, Niels, we were talking about the small variations that can create massive outcomes in our nonlinear world. We see that the very small um, differences that occur uh, in those highly correlated series are enough uh, uh, when trading an ensemble of systems that we get very different trade histograms produced from each of those markets, even though we are deploying the same ensemble of systems to one market as another. And that's because the interaction of our systems with those markets, there's two things that's going on. There's the relationship of the market itself. And if that market itself, like Brent or Crude, have these material price moves or outliers, that's one aspect of the outlier. The other aspect is our ability of our systems to capitalize on that outlier. So that's the design of our systems. Do, the, uh, do they have the ability to deliver outlier trades through their design? And there will be certain events uh, just, just based on the randomness of the market where one system will catch a large component of an outlier and another system, just because of one very small thing like too tight a stop or too tight a trail, it's going to be snagged out of that, that outlier of that price series but when we're trading an ensemble of trend-following systems, we find that we've got a, a better ability to capture the meat of that outlier as opposed to being dependent on a single system extracting all the juice from that outlier. So a single system is problematic because um, it's got a single design being applied to that outlier. We might find that that system gets kicked out and it might take a long time to get active again back into that outlier. But when we're trading an ensemble, we're finding that we're, we're getting the benefits of, you know, some systems get snagged out, but because I'm trying uh, applying 10 systems, maybe eight systems are still alive, two have gone. And or, you know, I might find one system coming in and out, in and out, in and out, because it keeps on getting snagged out of that particular outlier. But the other systems on balance stay, stay in for a long, long period of that actual outlier event. So the trade histograms produced are considerably different. So when we're looking at the problems associated with correlation in a portfolio, it's associated, I think we've talked about this before, Niels, we say it's the problems of correlation that exist in our trade positions in the portfolio. So it, for instance, um, we might find uh, just by happenstance that when we're trading a single system on these two markets, it might take fairly um, similar trades at similar times over the course of the event. And when we plot those, those trade outcomes, we'll get this similar histogram produced for both uh, Brent and both crude. But when we're trading this, this ensemble of systems, we get this significant dispersion 
in results between the, the outliers produced in Brent and the outliers produced in crude. So what we're finding is that um, the nature of outliers themselves are very disruptive for correlation. Um, correlation is, is a linear property that exists um, between the relationship uh, of, of the moving parts of one system against another system. It's looking at the linear relationship between those moving parts. It's not looking at the, the magnitude of those moves. So, you know, we might, for instance, get one market that is highly volatile but moves in a very similar way to a much more subdued market. They, the movements, overall movements, are almost identical, but the degree of magnitude of move or the volatility of the moves is significantly different. And correlations won't pick that up. They're going to say that they're very correlated because there's this linear relationship between the two. But in our world of outliers where nonlinearity is so important, we find that um, the, the actual magnitude of the move and the volatility of the move are very important. It's not just correlations that are important. And when we're applying our ensemble of systems, we're finding we're getting the best of all worlds here because it's allowing us, therefore, if we can produce a fairly uncorrelated relationship between two markets um, that are highly correlated, like Brent and crude, if our trade outcomes can be fairly uncorrelated when we're trading our ensemble on one versus the other, yet the markets themselves are highly correlated, what that means is that at the portfolio level, actual return streams in our portfolio are less correlated and less dependent on the market correlations that exist in that portfolio. And so what that allows us to do, uh, when we use an ensemble of trend-following systems, it actually allows us to trade further, more diversified across markets because we're less worried about the, the natural sort of correlations that exist between the market data. We're more concerned with the correlations that exist between the trade data. Does that make sense? No, I mean, it makes completely sense. Of course, it will go against uh, what some people believe, where you say, well, we just apply the same system with different timeframes. Maybe they're not actually different enough by doing that. I think uh, what you argue um, is very compelling. Of course, I don't have any uh, research to uh, to back it up, but it it is compelling. Uh, and I know on our side, at least uh, within our firm, uh, we do have two different, completely different approaches to trend following. Uh, so not as, as as diversified in terms of systems uh, as you do, but we have it certainly uh, not just trading one approach on top of the fact that you need tens or hundreds of different combination of parameters to further diversify, of course, uh, if you use fewer systems. But I, I do think it makes sense, Rich. Uh, I think it's a very compelling way of uh, of looking at things even but, but again, and this comes back to something that I always feel is great, even though sometimes there are some heated debates about uh, how one group of trend followers might be doing it. I think the beauty of all of this is that even if we do things differently, I mean, first of all, the important thing is that we believe in what we do. So we don't have to do, we don't have to be uh, the same, right? We should be different. But even when we do things differently, as long as we stick to a few golden rules, we're all pretty successful. And I think that actually is a testament to the underlying philosophy of trend following, which is super important and should give uh, many more investors confidence in the strategy than, than what we see today. But, you know, we'll, we'll keep reminding them, I guess, every week.
All right, with that out of the way, there's a couple of topics I think we have left uh, that we want to touch on. So I'll, in, in the interest of time, I'll let you kind of decide. Uh, we have about another 20 minutes or so how you want to split it. Um, so uh, feel free to uh, to dive in, uh, Rich, uh, where you want to go. I, I know one thing we talked about, one one of the things or one of the topics for sure is that, you know, um, is, is why I would say most trend followers, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I think most trend followers probably treat all markets equal, meaning the same. I think there will be some who have specific systems for specific markets, right? But that's certainly one which is quite an interesting topic. So I don't know if you want to dive into that, but I know you also had something else in your mind. Yeah, look, the reason I'm bringing up this topic, which is... um this general appreciation by trend followers that every liquid market has a propensity to deliver these outlier properties. Now, the reason I'm, I'm bringing that to the attention of people is that you've got to be very careful when we make statements regarding uh, we only trade uncorrelated markets and all of these things, because we know that when we undertake our research, when we undertake our back tests, we know that historically we can see correlations considerably change over time. Uh, we also notice this non-stationary nature of markets. You know, um, things that have occurred in a back test does not necessarily mean uh, we can project that forward into the future. We understand those principles. And so uh, one of the things I'd just like to, to, to state here is that the reason why we believe that these features called outliers are these universal phenomenon found in all liquid markets is that these financial markets, they're not physical systems, they're human systems. They're, they're systems that have participants that are humans or uh, they're systems that have algorithms that have been designed by humans. So it's very different, different to the physical systems you see in physics, such as um, Newton's world or the universe, which are physical systems. These systems, uh, called our financial markets, have um, humans as participants, intelligent participants. They're all fairly intelligent participants um, in this market, though on Twitter you might not agree with it all the time. Uh, but uh, but there there is inevitably um, these these biases and this um, this limited information available to to each participant that that creates these universal properties that we can find in any liquid market. So when we examine any liquid market we see that there is this leptocurtic tendency of every liquid market over the long term. Now, when I'm saying the long term, I'm saying over you know, 30, 40, 50 years of, of market data, you can see that um, the properties of that distribution have this leptocurtic tendency. And that's why we're saying that um, you know, if we treat this game of investing, of trend following that we do as a long-term venture, um, all of these liquid markets offer this, um, these tails, offer this leptocurtic tendency, offer this universal feature that can be capitalised on with our models. So our game is a game of patience. Um, it's a game of, of applying our principles to any liquid market. So when we start talking about correlations of markets, what we're saying is, ah, uh, I've got to be a bit careful because historically I see that these particular markets are correlated but does that mean I, I uh, you know, uh, exclude them uh, from trading them? And not necessarily, because 
Even trading highly correlated markets, we can, say, we can see that the correlations change when we're actually trading these things. Uh, history has told us what it's done before, but um, the present is telling us uh, you know, uh, how they're actually relating to each other today. And that, that's why I brought up that topic before about why I like these um, trading ensembles, uh, because what it's doing is it's, it's actually taking a, a, a risk management approach to breaking down the dependency that we might have over correlations. So what, what I'm saying is there is a process that we can apply that naturally will reduce the level of correlation in your trade distribution or your portfolio by applying this ensemble of trend-following systems. We're applying um, this static rules-based, systematic design-based approach to deliberately break down the, the correlations that exist in those markets. So one, one of the key things is that when we look at um, what are these outliers, why are they universal, we find that any complex adaptive system, whether it's um, any liquid market or any, any of these systems that are applicable, a, a city, a planet, a universe, etc., we find that... Um, these universal properties appear in many different forms, but they are regarded as what we call these transition events, Neil. So when we talk about change in a system, um, there are two forms of change going on. So if you could imagine, um, imagine we've got a, a system that is um, operating and um, over the course of its life evolves over the course of time to an equilibrium state. Over the course of time, it unwinds until ultimately it's in a, a level of equilibrium and no change is possible because everything is perfectly distributed. That's the way physical systems tend to evolve over time. Um, and that's the way we believe our universe is unfolding over time from a, a, what we call a, a point of low entropy to a point of high entropy. The order in the universe is slowly dissolving or dissipating, and ultimately we're getting to this, this cold point in the future called equilibrium. And at that point, we've got to be worried because um, at equilibrium, when, when we've got thermal equilibrium, there is no activity. Everything is a cold state, universe form distribution of heat throughout it. Everything is, is, is basically frozen in time. There is no movement. So... When we see these complex adaptive systems evolve, they do change over time, but they don't change in a, in a linear, predictable way. We find that they change in what we call fits and starts. They have a period of stability, then they have a massive transition to bring a new regime of a new form of stability, then we have a massive transition then we get another period of stability, a new regime. So we find that as the complex adaptive system is unwinding, it's going through these stasis periods interdispersed by these transition events. And what these transition events are signaling is, and why they are so significant, these transition events, and in any system, we find that these transition events are usually accompanied by horrible things, Niels, like mass extinction events. We find that um, the, the participants in the prior regime who are adopting these particular behaviours, they were focusing on the predictable attributes of that prior regime. They find suddenly, when this transition takes place, that no longer do their predictable methods work. There is no predictable 
predictability in the transition because the transition is actually a state between two regimes. And what we find with these transitions is that the transition itself disrupts all of the stability, interrelationships and dependencies of the prior system to destroy that predictability and then a new state is created, a new regime is created, which is almost significantly different to the prior regime. We get these transition events being a period of separation, a period of massive change between these fairly predictable, stable regimes. So most traders and most investors, we, we get caught in, in this predictable regime for a period of time, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. We start thinking that things are very easy, you know, uh, you know, we've seen uh, the stock market rise for the last 10 years from, you know, uh, from 2008 GFC up to 2020. There was this continual growth of the stock market. We had this particular regime. We had central bank interventions suppressing volatility. There are all of these characteristics, these predictable characteristics that most of the participants that were alive during that regime they started to see the predictability in that regime and they started jumping on those opportunities and exploiting those predictable regimes. But lo and behold, we suddenly get a transition event and a transition event is this period of massive change where it's a, a, a huge disruption to the prior stable state. So previously where the central bank was buying the dips and selling the tips or or buying the dips and selling the tips and, and applying this volatility compression control, uh, we suddenly find that now we're in uh, a quantitative tightening. We're not in quantitative easing back in those days. The regime has flipped. There's a totally different environment at play now. And we, 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 we're finding that it takes time after these transition events for this new stability to emerge. So uh, the separation of these stable regimes is is interdispersed with this transition event that takes a fair while to sort itself out. But during all of that period that these transition events are occurring, this is when we get these major trending periods. This is when we get these outliers. This is when we find that uh, all of the change that we saw in that predictable regime were associated with oscillations about predictability. We saw it as a bit like a swinging pendulum. We got this predictable pendulum in that prior regime where everything was, was converging about the mean, oscillating up and down in a predictable way. People were exploiting it. But suddenly we see that this, this level of change in that prior regime during a transition event becomes a totally different form of change. It's a much more chaotic form of change. There is no predictability in this change because what it's trying to do is it's trying to find the next stable state to settle on. So it could be undefined in term, in, 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 in as far as time. It can be undefined where it's going to settle. We don't know. There is no quantitative statistical techniques during a transition that we can use to define how long it's going to go, how big this transition is going to be. In fact, what is the nature of that transition? It's almost chaotic. But this is where these outliers emerge. And so in this, this complex adaptive system, we've got a bifurcation of system states. There's, there's a state of stability, and then there's a state almost of chaos or transition. 
There are these two states at play generally, and we get these, these periods of transition on either side of them. We've got these different regimes. Uh, you know, one, you know, one might have moved to a lower order, or one might have moved to a higher order. Uh, totally different regimes, and different participants will benefit from those different regimes. It's a bit like being presented with a new environment, and we'll find that a different form of species is successful in that environment. New participant behaviour is successful in that environment. In the prior environment, a different form of species was successful in that environment. Same way as we should view traders, a particular type of trade activity, a particular uh, very successful um, uh, investment method might be totally inappropriate for the next regime. But uh, separating those regimes is this transition, this chaotic frenzy where the entire arrangements of the prior regime are reshuffled, reconfigured to create this totally new regime. And, and so, you know, these transition events are these universal features we find in every single complex adaptive system we see. So why shouldn't we expect them in financial markets? We must expect them in financial markets. And we do see them. But I think that uh, the general sort of economic mindset is to not consider it this way. I think the general economic mindset is to treat the form of trends in our transition environment the same as the form of trends we find in our stable regime. And in that stable regime, yes, there were trends in that stable regime, but they are more of a mean reverting character. They are much more predictable. But in this, this zone of transition, these trends are much more chaotic, Machiavellian in nature, totally unpredictable. So that's why I, I like to view our world of finance as, as having this bifurcation of states. Where we focus on is this very chaotic world in the tail regions, uh, which you, know, you can't rely on things like back tests to give you guidance. You can't rely on, on statistical measures to give you significant guidance in this, this chaotic zone. You've got to rely on age-old principles like cutting losses short, letting profits run, structural design features applied at the portfolio level to mitigate your adverse risk. You know, these, these other complex uh, methods using a heavy leaning on statistics, etc., are certainly valid for uh, more predictable, more, more stable regimes, but perhaps are less uh, applicable in these more chaotic regimes. So I think I'll just finish it off there, Niels. What do you think? <laughs> uh, I think that's great. And another way of, of um, sort of highlighting this, we talk about golden rules, but what I think also what we're saying is that there are some universal truths that we can kind of pinpoint and that we can stick to. And, and when I was listening to you talking, I was reminded of a few things. One is, of course, regarding this thing about, you know, whether markets are efficient or not. Uh, I was reminded about my conversation a few years back with Andrew Lowe, Professor Andrew Lowe, who basically said, yeah, I mean, markets are efficient most of the time. But it is when they are not efficient that these transition periods that you talk about happen. And, and of course, we can see this very clearly, which look at a chart or or just turn on the new I mean this is the thing people it, it, sometimes I feel that we are we, we 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 talk about financial markets and and how to invest in them as if we're doing something that is a little bit sort of outside the norm but if you just turn on the news 
probably 90% of a news show is about things that are disruptive, things that are changing. It's never about some kind of um, rosy picture of stability and, and tranquility, right? It's it's something that is going wrong somewhere, right? Whether it's uh, almost civil war in, 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 in France at the moment or, or whatever it might be, it, it's never stable, it's never static. So why wouldn't, as you say, the financial markets um, display that? But I think what I really liked about your explanation, and I think this is something that we'll continue to to try and and uh, educate people about, um, and that is, it's also seen in a, in in the book that I've mentioned a few times on the show, um, probably a while back, called the Fourth Turning, which, as you rightly say, you know, we when we design our models and why we believe that these are complex adaptive systems is that they they are based on humans deep down, and when you read the book, uh, the Fourth Turning. Of course, what you'll learn is that every fourth turning is disruptive, is something where things simply break and new things emerge. Um, what is even more great is that Neil Howe, the author, will be on the podcast in a few weeks explaining his new book called The Fourth Turning Is Here. And I simply can't wait to hear that conversation and 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 for us to record that conversation but these are deep, deeply ingrained human behaviors that we as trend followers at the end of the day exploit through system design, through discipline, and by following uh, a very few number of but very important rules. And then, of course, we then apply this with 100% discipline through a systematic or mechanical process. That's what it's all about. Of course, we're still the still the minority uh, in this world, but it's such an important and it's fascinating uh, to think about this. Now, one of the things that I quickly touched upon uh, in, in, before the last topic was this thing about most trend followers use the same rules across all markets, right? But I think it's fair to say that there are probably some and 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 may, maybe there are good reasons why you may want to treat certain markets differently. But my question to you is, and I don't know if you thought about that, if you wanted to say, well, hang on, part of my risk budget doesn't have to apply to all the same parameters to all markets, would you then have to, uh, and I guess it's kind of an open-ended question, but would you then have to say, well, okay, I would then at least have to cluster certain markets in groups that exhibit more the same profile, uh, obviously probably based on correlation, and say, okay, so if I was to have another uh, set of parameters for this part of the portfolio, well, it should be applied to markets that are even, you know, that are very highly correlated, like, you know, fixed income markets, for example, or some commodities, like you mentioned, Brendan Crude, et cetera, et cetera. I mean... I guess you would have to have some kind of volatility, sorry, correlation clustering if you wanted to apply different rules to different markets, if it wasn't just by applying different systems across the all markets. Yeah, it's easy to imagine, for instance, uh, let, let's say a trend follower wants to target a different form of edge to what others targeting. They might say, all right, uh, 
this particular group of markets have these characteristics which are very similar, and therefore I apply a model that trades them in a similar way, which might be different to another group of markets that is trading in a different way, I'll, I'll apply a different model. So you'd, you'd be bifurcating your portfolio to allocate to uh, one form that's basically using the characteristics of the market and the other that's more a universal application. So, But then you'd have you, – it's complicated because then you'd have to say – well, how do I balance that entire portfolio, those two outcomes, uh, in a way that I can get the benefit of of both of them basically shining through? Uh, that that to me is very complicated. I don't know how you would do it. Um, so one, one, you know, you might find that a reweighting or a rebalancing is sort of um, putting a bias or a favourable bias to one form of system versus another form of system. I'm not sure how you do it, Neil. So I assume it's a bit like an exercise where we are allocating a trend-following portfolio into a traditional portfolio. I suppose you would use the back test as a basis to what is the appropriate weighting to do, um, and then you'd apply a particular weighting to those different types of strategies to hopefully then um, that that weighting holds some tenure into the future. But yeah, I, I, I'm just so fortunate, Niels, that I don't have those decisions to make and that I can invest all of my focus on on my very focused mindset on a particular form of trend following. That's all I do. That's, that's all I'm good at. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and 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 so you are. All right, Rich. Well, this was uh, this was great. Again, uh, some different um, views. Hopefully, things for people to think about uh, when they consider investing in trend following. Why they should do it, but also for those who want to dabble with it themselves. Hopefully, that's also been um, you know some some stuff for them to um, to think about and maybe do some further research on. So, I highly appreciate that. And if, of course, people. Uh, listening to us today do appreciate these um, sort of more in in-depth conversations as well um, then why not go and 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 show it by leaving a rating and review in the uh, preferred podcast app that you use um, because actually these reviews do help uh, quite a lot next week uh, I'm joined by Rob I think that's probably his last appearance before his Always prolonged holiday, um, but there we are. We'll live with that another year. But it will be your chance to um, to get Rob to uh, talk about some of the stuff that is important to you, some questions that you might have. Obviously, he's just published his latest book. Um, so if you have any questions, feel free to email them to info at toptradersandplot.com and I will do my best to get uh, Rob to answer them. That's it from now from Rich and me. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.